Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sorry to see there aren't many of you here. Very, yeah, not very popular, this writer we've got this afternoon. He's quite fond of Edinburgh. He's been coming here for 40 years. We keep telling him, you know, it's okay, it's okay, you can have a year off. But he's determined to come and we are delighted to welcome him. I'm Catherine Lockerbie, I'm the director of the Edinburgh International Book Festival and it's just pure pleasure uh, to be introducing today's author to you. As you all know, he's laden with awards of every kind, too many to mention. I think he's got every gong that exists exists at CBEs and OBEs. Um, he is, of course, the nation's favourite poet, and deservedly so. But this afternoon, he's going to be talking to you about his very uh, colourful and anecdote-filled life, a wonderful autobiography said and done with this fetching photo on it of him. I think it's particularly good when you see it afterwards. Just admire the glasses in particular. Um, this book will be available after the event in the signing tent, which is to the left and left again as you leave the auditorium, and uh, Roger will be delighted to sign copies. I'm going to leave you in his extremely capable and uh, lively uh, presence. Um, you're in for an hour of delight. Please welcome Roger McGuff. Hey. <coughs> Hello. That's, yes, it's, um, thank you. That's very, very kind. Um, Catherine mentioned that I have been here uh, before, in fact, uh, to Edinburgh. And um, I thought I'd just choose a piece from this um, autobiography about a visit to Edinburgh. I'm writing this surrounded by press cuttings, diary entries, programmes and letters, both loving and threatening, to do with a short lifetime in Edinburgh. On the wall are framed posters of some of the shows I've done there. Wordplay, a review starring the comparatively unknown Victoria Wood. Life Swappers, adapted for stage from a play I'd written for television. McGough and McCarthy, Pete McCarthy as a hard-nosed comic pitted against a stand-up poet. Words on the Run with Willie Russell. Mouthtrap, a play that Brian Patton and I concocted with a pair of poets trapped in a dressing room and visited by the Angel of Death. And to tell the truth, I'm getting bogged down with detail. However, when you realise that I've played the Fringe every year since 1961, for an average, say, of two weeks at a time, that adds up to 88 weeks, which means I've spent over a year and a half of my entire life in Edinburgh. Och, I'm practically Scottish. <laughs> and to prove it, here's a spooky but heartwarming story in a three-generational sort of way. When I was in Edinburgh in 2002 performing at the Book Festival in Charlotte Square. That's around here somewhere. I went to have lunch at Henderson's, a favourite old haunt on Hanover Street. I was making short work of an alfalfa sprout lasagna when I fell head over heels in love. What happened was that I looked up and saw a girl about 18, and my heart, as the poets say, skipped a beat. It was love at first sight, and yet it couldn't be. I'm too old for that sort of thing. Then, to add to my confusion, and before the twang of Cupid's arrow had died away, the girl was joined by an equally beautiful lady who was obviously her mother. And twang, I was in love again. <laughs> A double dose of delicious déjà vu. I was on the point of forsaking my alfalfa in favour of going over and introducing myself when they were joined by a third lady. I hesitated 
and looked closely at this attractive 60-year-old when, bang, it hit me. Not love, but the realisation that it was not Cupid's arrow that had pierced me, but time's arrow. The OAP was once an 18-year-old I'd fallen for 40 festivals ago and engaged in a brief Harlan fling. She recognised me. Oh, you've not changed at all. <laughs> but I'm bald and wrinkly. As I said, you've not changed at all. <laughs> I joined them for tea. And while we chatted away, the years fell away until, miraculously, grandmother, mother and daughter all became the same girl. And what takes me back here, year after year? Certainly not the deep-fried pizzas with herring and oatmeal topping, nor the hope that I might be the first poet to win a Perrier Award. It's partly to do with meeting old friends, but it's mainly to do with the city. We've been having a drawn-out love affair for most of my adult life, and my going to the festival to perform each year provides the excuse to meet up with an old flame. Although I have aged, she hasn't. And when I try to rekindle the old excitement, that first flush of youthful passion, I can't. But the good thing is that she doesn't seem to mind. One sunny morning, I went to the Royal Botanic Gardens and sat on a bench overlooking the city spread out below, with Arthur's seat and the Firth of Forth neatly in frame. I wrote this. The best show in town is the one down there, Edinburgh, starring the castle, the sun and the Firth fresh air. It's not a piece of verse I normally wish to publish or read in public because it's private, a billet de for an old and faithful lover. There well, thank you. Um, um, thank you. A few. Um, excuse me. I just move this table back. I'm bound to. Uh, a few poems. A poem about how I um, how I learned to read in Liverpool many many years ago during the war. Learning to read during the war wasn't easy, as books were few and far between. But mother made sure I didn't go to sleep without a bedtime story. Because of the blackout, the warm, comforting glow of a bedside lamp was not permitted. So mum would pull back the curtains and open wide the window. And by the light of a blazing factory or a crashed Messerschmitt, <laughs> cuddled up together, she would read sauce bottles, jam jars, and my all-time favourite, a tin of Ovaltine. <laughs> so many years ago, but still I remember her gentle guidance as I read aloud my first sentence. Sprinkle two heaped teaspoons. <laughs> when I was learning to um, learning to read and those things and speak, and I, I, I learned to read quite well. And uh, but there's some words I used to have problems with, and the word one word is the word sacrifice. I was forever hearing about the sacrifices my parents made, little ones almost daily, big ones when required. Having me meant sacrifices, going without, and then to cap it all, the scholarship. School uniforms, violin lessons, elocute, extra tuition. If it's not one thing, it's another. Hope you're worth it. But was I? The dictionary confirmed my doubts. Sacrifice, a ritual killing of a person or animal <laughs> with the intention of pleasing a deity. Sacrifice, no, I wasn't worth it. All that blood for a few O-levels. <laughs> I was doing a poetry please um, programme for you uh, in the last series and it's about uh, poems that have been used about cinema or in, in films and I was remembered by, uh, an incident when I was very young and it's a film called Beau Geste some of you may remember Beau Geste it was black, in black and white 
uh, made in the early 40s, 1940s, as about three brothers, three posh English brothers who some um, prob about a, a missing diamond or something, so they go off and end up in, in the desert, in the, in the foreign legion. And my father taking me to see this film when I was about that big, but the poem is really about the power of imagination, to a child's imagination. Beau geste. It was a special occasion, my father taking me to the pictures on a Saturday night, just the two of us, a film that mother didn't care to see, Beau geste in black and white. In the crowded cinema, you couldn't breathe for cigarette smoke. But for little four-eyes' sake, Dad found a couple of seats up near the screen, as things turned out a big mistake. I was too close to the sun. Its rays burned through my lenses into the brain like a laser. Sweat tickled in waddies down my back. I loosened my collar and removed my blazer. When the fort was attacked, I was on the parapet, an easy target. I cursed the legion under my breath. We were outnumbered, but when my rifle jammed, I stood proud and flung it at the face of death. But the next thing I remember was crawling across that burning hell of no man's land, parched and delirious. Then I recognised my brothers and collapsed into the sand. Choking, I gasped, Water, water. Sorry, Bo, Digby, John. I can't go on. It's no use. What's that, son? Came a familiar voice. Hang on until the interval. We'll get some juice. I shook my head. Was it a mirage, a miracle? An usherette, clothed all in white as in a dream, was standing in a spotlight among the dunes, with a tray of cold drinks and walls ice cream. <laughs> we never saw the end. And walking home, Dad, more embarrassed than annoyed, shook his head. You shouldn't let your imagination run away with you. Not a word to anybody. Go straight to bed. It was only a film after all. So I did as I was told. Still blushing with shame, I could hardly refuse. Although the first thing I did was go into the yard and shake out the sand from my shoes. <laughs> so, it's a poem about um, uh, an embarrassing experience. Uh, years and years ago, when I was invited to go into, into prison, work with, uh, uh, with the prisoners uh, for a day, and uh, they, they were lifers. I was told that these... Uh, prisoners will be lifers and I was expecting probably old people and the fact they were young some cases younger than me and because I was embarrassed I made this faux pas the terrible outside the bus I often took as a boy to visit an aunt went past it from the top deck I'd look beyond the wall for signs of life a rooftop protest a banner hung from cell windows I picture the escape two men sliding down the rope and legging it up Walton Road maybe hijacking the bus and holding us hostage. But I'd talk them round, share my sweets and pay their fares. Years later, I'm invited there to run a poetry workshop, an escapism easily contained. A class of 18, all lifers in their early 20s, most with tattoos, childishly scratched and inked in. Nervous, I remove my raincoat and shake my umbrella. Phew, it's terrible outside, I say. <laughs> Then panic. I, I, I mean, compared to life inside, it's not terrible. It's good. It, it was the weather. I mean, I was talking about there. It's, it's really bad. Not, not as bad as being in here locked up all your life, shit. <laughs> they look at me blankly, wondering perhaps if that was my first poem and not thinking much of it. <laughs> we talk. I read my stuff. They read theirs. I answer questions about fashion and music. 
The questions I want to ask, I can't. Hands up those who kill their fathers. Hands up those who kill more than once. Hands up, but those hands are clean, those faces bright. Any one of them I'd trust with my life, or would I? Time's up and the door clangs open. They all gather round and insist on shaking my hand. A hand that touches women, that lifts pints. A hand that counts money, that buttons up brand new shirts. A hand that shakes the hand of the governor, that raises an umbrella and waves down a cab. A hand that trembles and clenches and pushes itself deep into a raincoat pocket. A hand that is glad to be part of the terrible outside. This um, next poem is about... Thank you. Um, thank you. A poem called How to Escape from Prison. And, um, yeah, I did this, that program called... Record that program called QI the other week, a few weeks ago. And they, they, one of the things they did, they gave us a box full of these things. People have all escaped from prison using the following. Dental floss, large potato, chilli powder and a green felt-tip pen. So imagine any one of those, how you'd escape, wouldn't you? Dental floss, you know. Uh, the, uh, the potato apparently cut into the shape of a, uh, a gun that was used. People did that. Uh, chili powder, easy. But they, the interesting one was the green felt-tip pen. And in America, one guy escaped from a state penitentiary. And he, with the green felt-tip pen, he colored his prison uniform green and walked out like a medical orderly. And I was going... <laughs> Anyway, here's my, um, amazing. Here's how to escape from prison. Rise from your bunk nice and early because today will be your big day. Remove the dental floss from its container and tie one end around the bars of your cell window, leaving the rest dangling. Peel the potato. You're unlikely to possess a potato peeler or a Swiss army knife, so you must bite into it and break off little pieces. Spread the mulch around the floor of your cell nearest to the door. I bet you know what to do with the felt tip. Correct. Draw green spots all over your face, mess up your hair, then lie down on the bed and, like plague victims do in the films, make loud wailing noises. You hear footsteps. Having observed you through the spy hole, the warder, moved by your pitiful state, will unlock the door and rush in. Whoosh! He will slip on the peelings fall clumsily and skid across the length of the floor. While he lies helpless on his back, like a giant cockroach, throw the chilli powder into his eyes and during the confusion, leap off the bed and tie the loose end of the floss to the inside handle of the door. You still with me? Jump back on the bed and continue to wail. But be warned, he'd be really angry now and threatening you with terrible revenge, he will stagger to his feet and storm out slamming the heavy metal door behind him. Magic. The dental floss, suddenly strengthened and made taut, will tug the bars out of the window, <laughs> leaving enough space for you to squeeze through and drop into the yard below where the helicopter, engine running, is ready to whisk you off to freedom. Helicopter. Oh, yes, I forgot to mention the helicopter. Thank you. There you go. That's but, uh, poem about the dissatisfaction gene that uh, many of us, a lot of people have. It's a poem based on a poem by Charles Baudelaire called The Wrong Beds. Life is a hospital ward and the beds we are put in are the ones we don't want to be in. 
We'd get better sooner if put over there by the window or by the radiator. One could suffer easier there. At night we dream of faraway places. The Côte d'Azur, all perfume and light. Or near a home, a cottage in the Cotswolds. A studio overlooking the sea. The soul could be happier anywhere than where it happens to be. Anywhere but here. We take our medicine daily, nod politely and grumble occasionally. But it's out of our hands, always the wrong place. We didn't make our beds, but we lie in them. When I was... Um, when I was 60, I decided to live every day as if it were my last. But after lying in bed for about four days with the curtains <laughs> closed, wearing a sort of oxygen mask, I thought, no, no, not having that. I must be something better. So I decided to be very positive about, uh, about aging, and this poem called, It's a Joy to Be Old. It's a joy to be old. Kids through school, the dog dead and the car sold. Worth their weight in gold, bus passes, let asses rule, it's a joy to be old. The library, when it's cold, immune from ridicule, the dog dead and the car sold. Time now to be bold, skinny dipping in the pool, it's a joy to be old. Death cannot be cajoled, no rewinding the spool, the dog dead and the car sold. No point having a fortune told, have fun playing the fool, it's a joy to be old, the dog dead and the car sold. Well, thank you. Um, it's funny that um, poem, yes, um, about ageing, this poem really, uh, it's about Alzheimer's disease and it's called Fine Romance. Excuse me, darling, in advance for the slow macabre dance I may one day lead you into. Holding you too tight for comfort and whispering endearments if I should call you by another's name, a lover's perhaps from years ago, don't be startled, it's just a slip of the moonlight. And when the music grows louder and the dance goes faster, and losing my balance I stumble, words spinning off in all directions, don't be embarrassed, it's just a slip of the darkness. For when the blizzard ranges and snow settles on words, their sense becomes frozen, language hallucinates. Listen, that's me out there, Howling at the scrabble board. Should I fail to recognize you? Curse, complain, step on your toes. Forgive me, I didn't mean to. For this is a fine romance. Despite the slow macabre dance, I may one day lead you into. Funny that's, um, thank you. Funny, I realized I wrote the sort of antidote to that poem 40 years ago when I was. Um, in Liverpool, um, uh, early 20s, and um, the idea of, of, of ageing, a poem called Let Me Die a Young Man's Death. Let me die a young man's death, not a clean and in between the sheets holy water death, not a famous last words, peaceful out of breath death. When I'm 73 and in constant good humour, may I be mown down at dawn by a bright red sports car on my way home from an all-night party. Or when I'm 91 with silver hair and sitting in a barber's chair, May rival gangsters with ham-fisted tommy guns burst in and give me a short back and insides. <laughs> or when I'm 104 and banned from the cavern. May my mistress catch me in bed with her daughter <laughs> and fearing for her son cut me up into little pieces and throw away every piece but one. 
let me die a young man's death. Not a free from sin, tiptoe in, candle wax and waning death. Not a curtains drawn by angels born. What a nice way to go. Death. I was, thank you very much. Notice we're going so many often going to like sort of funerals and memorial services these days and so often now it's a fashion almost for the word death not to be used, not to be mentioned and there's always that sense of celebrate the life which is fine. And here's a poem called I Am Not Sleeping. I don't want any of that. We're gathered here today to celebrate his life, not mourn his passing. Oh yes you are. <laughs> Get one thing straight. You're not here to celebrate, but to mourn until it hurts. I want wailing and gnashing of teeth. I want sobs, and I want them uncontrollable. I want women flinging themselves on the coffin, and I want them inconsolable. Don't dwell on my past, but on your future. For what you see is what you'll be, and sooner than you think. So get weeping. Fill yourselves with dread, for I am not sleeping. I am dead. <laughs> uh, let me notice that um, the poem about um, Let Me Die, Young Man's Death was really the influence of uh, Dylan Thomas. You may have seen there, I've been very much influenced by one of the first poets that really uh, uh, got me going into it. And, and his uh, thing about Dylan Thomas, and I was doing a Poetry Please programme. Um, a programme called Booze and the Muse about poets and their relationship with alcohol. Brown's Hotel on the high street of this lovely coastal village in south-west Wales is where Dylan Thomas drank with or without Caitlin. And according to legend, eavesdropped on barroom conversations to provide him with lines and characters in Under Milkwood. Mind you, this seems a bit too good to be true. Unless you can imagine the scene in the snug on a wet Wednesday evening. So, there's the landlord behind the bar. There's Dylan Thomas. Landlord. Well, here comes Di the fish. Had a good day, boyo? Aye. I've been out on the slow black, slow black, crow black, fish boat bobbing sea. And I've got a thirst like a dredger. Give me a pint of stout, will you? It's quiet in here tonight. Aye. You can hear the houses sleeping in the streets. The slow, deep salt and silent black and bandage night. That'll be one shilling and fourpence. <laughs> I see Dylan the eavesdrop is up to his old tricks. Pretending to be so busy doing the crossword he can't hear us. Watch this. Good evening, Mr Thomas. Caitlin's still in London, is she? Yes, Di. She'll be back home tomorrow. Bet you can't wait, eh? Whacking thighed and piping hot. Thunderbolt brassed and barnacle breasted, flailing up the cockles with eyes like blow lamps and scooping low over her lonely hot water bottle body. That's right, Di. Um, <laughs> barnacle breasted, that's one word, is it? <laughs> okay. The cat poem called The Curless Cat. You win at the races... Oh, sorry, because I often write cat poems and things, and sometimes and people think I, I love cats, and uh, I do have a cat. Uh, or he has, he has me, or I don't want those things. But um, anyway, it's called The Curless Cat. 
You win at the races, you lose your keys, the cat couldn't care less. Trip over your laces and scrape your knees, the cat just couldn't care less. You develop a cough, your lungs got a hole in, the cat couldn't care less. Your wife's run off, your wallet's been stolen, the cat just couldn't care less. You write off the car, the country's at war, the cat couldn't care less. You try on her bra, there's a knock at the door, the cat, the cat just couldn't care less. Your wife has come home, not a moment too soon, the cat couldn't care less. You fly off to Rome, a second honeymoon, the cat just couldn't care less. Next day there's a break-in, it goes unreported, the cat couldn't care less. Everything's taken, but there's food and it's watered, so the cat just couldn't care less. The following night, when squatters drew up, the cat couldn't care less. Set the curtains alight, a gas main blew up, the cat just couldn't care less. You stand in the rubble, give your wife a big hug, the cat couldn't care less. Far away from the trouble, curled up on a rug, the cat just couldn't care less. <laughs> so, Don got very lively then, didn't I, when I was talking about cats as well. Um, two poems that were um, uh, commissioned, two commissioned poems, and uh, first one commissioned by Derby, Derbyshire County Council, they wanted poems uh, to go into various workplaces uh, to, to uh, advertise the sort of literary, Derbyshire Literary Festival, and I was given the laundrette. So um, I wrote this poem called Love in the Laundrette, using homophones, you know, not gay mobiles, they're sort of like words, words, <laughs> words, Words that sound the same, they're spelt the same, sound differently. Sorry, you're spelt the same, aren't they? And, but they sound different, for instance. Two of a kind, we have so much in common, I thought, as I cycled past her on the common. Our bags were stuffed with soiled belongings. Was she lonely too, filled with untold longings? I could write a tune, a poem or a play for her, knowing that soon I would make a play for her. Although we had met only moments ago, once inside I decided to give it a go cried, let's put our clothes into the same wash. The look of horror told me that it wouldn't wash. Let's save time and money, share our washing powder. But she turned her back and snapped, take a powder. She needed her own machine to run her own cycle. So I unloaded and lonely rode home on my cycle. And this is one um, about um, the total eclipse in the, millenn the millennium year. And um, you know, the total eclipse of the moon. And I, I was worrying about this and trying to get some information from the internet. thought I need the science uh, and the astrophysics and all those things to explain it in, in a poem. But I realised the, the answer to the poem was much nearer home, as is often the, the case. Every day eclipses. The hamburger flipped across the face of the bun. The frisbee winning the race against its own shadow. The cricket ball dropping for six in front of the church clock. On a golden plate, a host of communion wafers. The brown contact lens sliding across the blue iris. The palming of small change. Every day eclipses. Out of the frying pan, the tossed pancake orbits the Chinese lampshade. The black snookering the cue ball against the green bays. The winning putt on the 18th. The tiddlywink twinking toward the tiddly cup. Every day eclipses. Neck and neck in the hot air balloon race. Holding up her sign... The lollipop lady blots out the Belisha beacon. The foaming tankard thumped onto the beer mat, the plug into the plug hole. In the fruit bowl, the orange rolls in front of the peach. Every day eclipses another day. Goodbye ball patch. Hello, Yamulka.
a sombrero tossed into the bullring. Leading the parade, the big bass drum. We hear symbols, but cannot see them. One eclipse eclipses another eclipse. To the cold white face, the oxygen mask, but too late. One death eclipses another death. The baby's head, the mother's breast. The open O of the mouth, seeking the warm O of the nipple. One birth eclipses another birth. Every day eclipses. Um, thank you. This Society of Authors um, meeting there a few weeks ago, prize giving, and I was giving an address muttering about um, that, that you don't see many poetry books. We pity there weren't more poetry books up there in the uh, bestsellers, in a way. And perhaps the reason is that publishers and publishers maybe don't have the confidence in poetry. They don't push it and give advances. Maybe the bookshops really don't stock it. Maybe it's the poets themselves, perhaps, writing poems that are sometimes very difficult and accessible. I don't know. Um, Sometimes I find that. Here's a poem called On Good Authority. Forgive me if I do not understand many of your poems. In fact, any of them. <laughs> For I'm told on good authority that they achieve the rich complexity of actuality and that you are a poet of luminous curiosity, confident in melding myth with redemptive ambiguity. The fault, then, must surely lie with me. For I lack the confidence and curiosity to clamber over the wire fence surrounding your complex actuality. Without a torch, I would lose my way, and in the melding myth of the compound, either be torn to pieces by Cerebus or fall into the pit of redemptive ambiguity. Forgive me. Thank you. Um, one of the great things about appearing at the festival and the sort of literary festival is that is the Intelli highly intelligence of the of the audience. You know what I mean? You, 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 you walk in, you can tell. These, oh gosh, you know the, the IQ uh, here is amazing. Um, and so you can do poems that you wouldn't normally do. You know, other parts in theatres and around the country. I mean, this next poem I wouldn't do uh, elsewhere because people, for instance, haven't heard of George Perrick. You know, imagine that. So, um, you know, George Perrick, you know, George Perrick, the French uh, novelist, you know, you know, you know you're kidding me. Uh, no, George Perrick, uh, French Algerian novelist, a wonderful guy, experimental novelist, uh, whose most famous book was called La Disparition, published in 1970s. And it was 50,000 words, and he omitted the letter E completely from the, from the book. It's an amazing uh, uh, work of art. Anyway, so I, I just imagine George Perrick reviewing the Oxford book of 20th century English verse. This heavy volume is a must for popple who lick pottery. <laughs> palm after palm of glo in a glorious fast of literature. Memorable symbols and metaphors everywhere. Will fin rims and images lap out from free page. Grat palms are fattered from the licks of Louis McNick, John <laughs> Hilaire Block. T.S. Liot and the Hughes. <laughs> Not forgetting Larkin's favourite pot, Hardy, who has 27 palms compared to only Nin by W.B. Yats. And it goes, goes on and goes on. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, this poem really is, is am I very interested in, uh, I did French, you know, I did schoolboy French at university and became very interested in existentialism and uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and so forth. And I mean, there's someone 
and you may correct me, I don't know, someone said, was it maybe Malame, someone said, said, je suis un autre, or je suis un autre, I am another. Do you know that expression? Was it Malame? Anyway, if you, if you don't tell me, tell me after. Anyway, so I imagine this poem, so Malame meets Jeremy Clarkson, with a poem, <laughs> poem called Je suis un auto, or Je suis un auto. And uh, I'll do it in, in French, sort of French. Life, my friend, is a busy motorway. And I would rather spend it in a boulevard cafe, reading verse and drinking van ordinaire. Things go from bad to worse, but I don't care, because I am French and therefore philosophical. <laughs> and when I die, as die I must, chassis broken, windscreen shattered, tow me to an existentialist scrapyard, and before my rust is scattered, take for the scrap boot one final photo, one for the road, for je suis Sunoto. Thank you. <laughs> And um, good, yeah, glad like that. Excellent, you're pushing me further into this now, into this uh, existential line. So I'll do this next poem, which is uh, uh, which uh, uh, I wrote, by, very much inspired by, uh, by by Sartre, and it raises some quite interesting existential uh, tenets. I think that, that will amuse you. Um, it's called "In a Baker's Shop Somewhere in Northern France." I wrote it in French, but I'll do it in English. Obviously, it's also <laughs> a loaf, please," said the lady. White or brown, the baker replied. Either or, the lady said, I've got my bike outside. <laughs> actually, I, th I think it loses in translation, actually, because, um, no, you know, because it was written in French, and French is the language of, of shall I do it in French? I'll do it. I'm sorry, I, I misjudged. I'm sorry, I'm embarrassed now. I'll do, it, I'll do it in French. In a baker's shop somewhere in northern France in French. Du pain, s'il vous plaît, dit la femme. Blanc ou brun, répondit le boulanger. Oh la la, c'est la même chose, dit madame. En dehors, il a ma bicyclette. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Um, let's go one more. One more little bit for me. Um, this is about, uh, remember late, late night lineup that um, program. It's part in the book and said and done when I talk about in the 1960s, late 60s and uh, with the scaffold and thank you very much have been released the song and uh, we sort of getting well known and then right <laughs> late night lineup do you remember that on BBC Two? this rather highbrow but popular programme went out live on Sunday evenings and consisted of a number of guests discussing the arts and various topics of the day with Joan Bakewell I was flattered to be invited to be admitted to the inner sanctum of cosmopolitan trendsetters I did worry though as I nibbled my British Rail cheese sandwich on the journey down, if I'd be able to hold my own among the intellectuals whose wit and erudition refracted like a diamante rainbow into our living room each week. In a word, would my mo be bon enough? Maybe they'd invited me by mistake, or I imagined an even worse scenario. One of the producers is a poet whose verse has been rejected by Penguin, and seething with hatred, he's having me on the programme so that I can be exposed, live in front of millions, as a talentless, pushy scouser he wishes me to be. It takes three cans of lager to take away the taste of the sandwich. <laughs> and here is Joan Bakewell in the green room at TV Centre, failing to put me, put me at my ease as she introduces me to Sir Edward Boyle and Yehudi Menwin. For with a sinking feeling, I realise I've more in common with the half-coated chocolate digestives on the table than with my fellow guests. <laughs> Wine, Roger? No thanks, I'll have another lager. 
This will be the last one though, definitely. Need to go to the toilet, but try and hang on until the last minute. Because if you go now, you might want to go again during the programme. And it's live, remember? Five minutes before we're due to go on air, I slip away from the throng and head for the gents. I'm just installed, unzipped, and as they say in ceramic circles, pointing Percy at the porcelain, <laughs> when Yehudi rushes in and stands next to me. Suddenly, I get writer's block. As he, as he chats away and micturates melodiously. He is still talking as he puts the finely tuned instrument back into its case and goes to the wash basin. I can't admit to not having started, so I do what men always do. Let out a pretend sigh of relief, shake it all about and say, oh, that's better. Then I follow him first to the wash basin and then to the studio. At the time, I hadn't seen Tom Stoppard's The Real Inspector Hound, nor Alan Bennett's 40 Years On, nor had I read Norman Mailer's Armies of the Night, or Cancer Ward by Solzhenitsyn, and so I had nothing to add to the lively conversation. <laughs> that took place during the hour that followed. I've always been a good listener, as opposed to a fulsome talker, which, although an asset in the confessional box and at the bedside, at the hospital bedside, is a quality less appreciated on chat shows. I listened and nodded wisely. I smiled and tuttered as conversation, sometimes pianissimo, sometimes prestissimo, ranged from Vivaldi to Vietnam, from Tai Chi to Tchaikovsky. Seated between Menuhin and Boyle was like a spectator at Wimbledon as the two men lobbed and volleyed and served verbal aces. Not only did my neck ache, but I find it increasingly difficult to concentrate on anything save a half gallon of lager fermenting. <laughs> when the recent assassination of Robert Kennedy was referred to, the anguish that seemed to take hold of my body, hands clenched and thrust between my thighs as I rocked to and fro, said it all. I'm dying for a pee. When would they start talking about Everton, I wondered. <laughs> Suddenly, it was my turn to walk out on the centre court. On the previous day, there had been a student riots in Berkeley, California, and had I been moved to write a poem, asked Joan. Uh, no, but I do have one about the assassination of Martin Luther King. But time was against us, she was afraid. Thanked us all for taking part, and bade the viewers good night. Before the credits had finished rolling, I was out of the studio, down the corridor and into the gents. And guess who was up there in the rostrum before me? Baton in hand, conducting Handel's water music. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Just a few more poems and then perhaps um, uh, a question or two. Um, yes, I was, I, I was fascinated by um, Yak Butter. Sculptors, you know, they make these yak butter, uh, sculptures on yak butter. Do you know? Um, fascinating. And uh, in, in Tibet, and I was reading about this, about these uh, yak butter sculptures, and it's got my mind going. So I, I wrote this called Yak Ad Infinitum. In Tibet, there is an ancient tradition of making sculptures of trees and flowers using butter made from the milk of yaks. On the night of the Great Prayer Festival, crowds gaze at the carved figures in the flickering light of yak butter lamps. As night passes, the butter begins to melt, and by dawn it is all over, its transiency intrinsic to the sacred nature of
of the event. The art's most famous exponent was Renko, who, before becoming a Buddhist monk, had gone to Paris in the 1920s to study sculpture and pursue his dream of becoming an artist and getting laid. He was soon burning the candle at both ends, working feverishly during the day in his atelier and drinking all night in the bars of Montmartre with many of the leading surrealists, including Dali, Duchamp, Magritte and Picasso. Eventually, tiring of debauchery and excess, he swabbed absinthe for incense, the Moulin Rouge for the prayer wheel, the velvet beret for the shaven head and returned home to join a monastery. But his artistic impulse could not be denied and once channeled into the ancient art of yak butter sculpture, burning genius coupled with his passion for surrealism earned him the title the Salvador Dali Lama. <laughs> not, not all his early pieces, however, were entirely successful. The wash basin, for instance, clearly inspired by Marcel Duchamp's urinal, quickly melted into yellow sludge once the taps were turned on and disappeared down its own plug hole. <laughs> Moreover, his eight-armed Venus de Milo, based on Durga, the Hindu goddess, almost had him run out of town. And the less said about the killer shark, carved out of butter and deep-fried in batter, the better. <laughs> his reputation was quickly restored, however, by the sequence known as Yak ad Infinitum, whereby, from a massive slab of butter, he carved a life-size model of the animal, standing noble and proud at over six foot. Then came the stroke, or rather, the squeeze of genius. He set to work milking the sculpture and was soon able to collect enough milk, which, when churned, provided all the butter needed to make another yak equal in size to the original. <laughs> now, a lesser artist might have stopped there, but not Renko. Once again, it was out with the milking stool, and he was rewarded with enough butter to create a third animal, even more magnificent than its predecessors. A fourth followed, then a fifth and it seemed as if this simple monk would go on forever replicating buttermilk yaks. The art world was beginning to take notice when suddenly, one warm summer's night, tragedy struck. Whoever started the fire and turned his studio into a blazing inferno would never know. A superstitious monk? A jealous Dadaist? Perhaps a band of herdsmen, fearing a butter glut, had swooped down from the Himalayas. A lifetime's work was destroyed and clarified lava buttered the surrounding hillsides and scalded whatever lay in its path as it poured through the valley. Over the mountains, a pall of rancid green smog hung for months, suffocating whole herds of yak. And Renko perished. But it's rumoured that on the night of the great prayer festival, the gaze of the crowd is drawn heavenwards above the flickering light of the butter lamps to a place far beyond our imaginings. A blood-red moon, a cloudless sky, a herd of yak stretching ad infinitum moves slowly between the stars before dissolving into smoke, its transiency intrinsic to the sacred memory of the event. It's a long, long one, that for me. It's a short, a short poem called One Mistake After Another. My first mistake was to do the cooking in the nude. <laughs> my second was to fry the sausages inside the tent. <laughs> my third was to leap outside once it caught fire. <laughs> my fourth was to land on the rear end of a sheep. <laughs> my fifth 
was to cling to her fleece as she booked and writhed and raced across the field. My sixth was to wave when the farmer pointed the camera. My seventh was to close my eyes as I flew over the hedge. My eighth was to land on the hind quarters of a pot-bellied sow. My ninth was to drag the farmer to the floor of the pig pen while attempting to smash his camera. My tenth was to run away and hide in the deep, dark woods. My eleventh was to break into the cottage, eat the porridge, and fall asleep in the bed that was just right. My twelfth was not to notice Goldilocks until next morning <laughs> when her father, the police, and the three birds arrived. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Um, another poem there, early on, I put that poem early on, about sacrifices, you know, the sacrifice my parents made, and I always remember, that's what parents do, isn't it? You make sacrifices, don't you, for your, for your children. And you don't want anything in return, do you? Well, they could get out of bed, I suppose, in the morning, clear, clear. But no, it's, it just, it's all, and in a way, and uh, I always remember my, my, when I was little growing up, and my, my grandmother's aunties and mother in law, one thing they always used to say, agree on, say, you know, uh, I don't want to be a burden on my children when I go old. You know, I'm, I'm never going to be a burden on my children. That was a lovely, lovely thing to say. No, I thought it was very good. But as I've got older, and uh, <laughs> you know what's coming, I got two, um, two big lads away, I got two uh, teenagers. I thought, sod it, cut it, look at that, sod that. That's a poem called Payback Time. <laughs> oh Lord, let me be a burden on my children. <laughs> For long they've been a burden upon me. May they fetch and carry, clean and scrub, and do so cheerfully. Let them take it at turns at putting me up. Nice sunny rooms at the top of the stairs, with a walk-in bath and lift installed, at great expense. Theirs. <laughs> Insurance against the body blows of time. Isn't that having children's all about? To bring them up knowing that they owe you and can't contract out. What's money for but to spend on their schooling? Designer clothes, mindless hobbies, usual stuff. And as soon as they're earning, off they go. Well, enough's enough. It's been a blessing watching them develop. The parental pride we felt as each one grew. But Lord, let me be a burden on my children. And on my children's children, too. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, if um, there are a few minutes, ten minutes left, uh, if you have any, any questions uh, you'd like to ask, if, if you don't, it doesn't matter. Um, perhaps there's a microphone there, isn't it? Perhaps have some house lights. Good, thank you. You don't, don't yeah, I have to. That's good. That's nice. Thank you. Yes. No? Fine. Okay. Uh, oh, it's well. Yes, young man. Uh, Roger, um, how well do you think the music of the scaffold stands up today? Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. My boy. My boy. Uh, yeah, I mean, a, lot, so a lot of people, uh, you're, you're quite young yourself. I'm surprised you, uh, you're a big fan. Um, <laughs> but a young, some young people probably don't remember the scaffold. The scaffold was sort of a, a cross between the Cheeky Girls and Oasis. That sort of... Uh, <laughs> of our time um, made some great movies uh, well things like Lily the Pink you know the silly, the silly songs I think uh, kiddies still like um, but it was just fun to do and, and of course we did send ourselves up it was very much comedy wasn't it and that 
doesn't, there's not much room in, in the world now for that. It, 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 everyone takes themselves so very seriously. We never did. But, um, <laughs> cheers. <Here. laughs> Fine. Oh, yes. Oh. Yeah. The idea of mellowing with age, I suppose. Um. <laughs> I, I don't know. I wasn't angry. I don't think I was angry as a human, really, to be honest with you. I don't think I was angry. Other people are angry. Uh, I, watched, I wished I was more angry, in a sense. I was just sort of, you know, getting on with it and, and so forth and so on. I was, I was never that. No, it wasn't. It wasn't a firebrand. Wish I had. I was, that's one of my the books about that, really. Wish, wish I'd be more outgoing and so forth. Oh, great, fine. Okay, we'll leave it there because you be. Oh, one lady, sorry, sorry, Miller. What? Say again. If you'd have said what you did there. Oh. If, you had, if your uh, opinion there had come true, what would you have been like, for heaven's sake? Oh, oh my um, opinion to be. No, I, I was. Um, I, between what I did, I become what I wanted to be. To me, and I. Yes, I, I did. I never knew what I, when I was young I didn't want to do, but when I was about 18, 19, 20, I, you know, when I wrote my first poems, when I was about 18, 19, I thought, oh, good, writing poems, must be a poet. It's not, it's not like, a, in a sense, being a painter, I think. You've got to really develop your craft in a, in a painter, and you don't, you know, you're always told quite early on, you haven't got it, or you've got to work harder. In a sense, of, when you write a poem, you know, you just do it yourself, and it's something quite secret. I found that's why I liked it. It was secretive. And it's a way of working in all those things that, um, that I got me into trouble for at school, like being a bit smart-arsed in my essays or, or being punning and that sort of thing. And you can't do that in geography essays. And uh, <laughs> I was getting told off for it, so but poems I could, and that was great to me. And I thought, well, whatever I do in my life, I'll, I'll be a poet. I didn't think I'd you know, be a professional poet or, or whatever, but having made that decision, I thought that's what I'm going to do. So, you know, I was delighted. I'm, I'm full of, um, you know, self-envy, really. It's, it's good. It's worked out, worked out quite well. I, I will. I will leave it there. And I just thank you very much for for coming uh, for coming this afternoon. I do appreciate you. I love coming back in. The reason I come, of course, is um, people like yourselves. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.